You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. You are a good and gracious God. Heavenly Father, and so we cast ourselves upon you, asking that your spirit might open the eyes of our hearts, that we might not only see your power right now, but that we might see how good and kind and loving you are to us. These things we ask and pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks, Peter. Now, we have saved the best of last because it's the people who stay now who are the really keen people. You are the best. You are the cream of the crop. Other people have drifted away, slipped away, off to tennis or whatever it is they do. You're here. You must live boring lives. Uh, so I'm only kidding. Okay, okay. Uh, and uh, our turn is now particularly to Romans chapter 5. And Romans chapter 5. And uh, Joetta, can I ask you to read that? I'll just ask you in a moment, is that all right? I didn't set you up to do it, but uh, you'll have to do it without prep. Is that okay? Don't do it quite yet, but of course uh, we'll do something else straight. But uh, be ready for the moment when the moment arrives. Uh, I've put us on uh, uh, two narratives. I've put us into two stories, uh, two houses, if you like. And the last question is, which city do you want to live in? Uh, no, no, I'm not saying that. I mean, which city do you want to live in, Babel or Zion? They're, they're the two cities I have in mind. Um, because uh, in the end, you'll be living in one or the other, and uh, you can start living in one or other now, in Babel or in Zion. Zion, the city of the Lord, of course. Babel, chapter 11 of Genesis, standing ultimately for Babylon, the great city of unbelief, and two, uh, two sort of pictures, if you like, of God's intentions for us as human beings, one way or another. Uh, we're living in a world, uh, as we've been saying, particularly from the 1960s onwards, the death of God is announced, and we live in a world with what you may call an assurance deficit, an assurance deficit. I'm not talking money here. Uh, we're talking in a world particularly, I mentioned to you uh, in the question and answer session we had about my experience of the second blessing and of, and of holiness and trying to gain holiness by a technique of some sort or other, and it was a failure, I might say, and I stopped doing that, but it was a, it was a technique open to us. That was in the uh, early 60s, and it went on. But in the 1960s, particularly with the death of God announced, many Christians began to feel, well, if God is, you know, the world around us is saying God is dead, God, show yourself to us, show yourself to us. Whereas uh, before that, People doubted. They doubted that they were good enough for God. And hence, they went into holiness techniques. But now, we didn't doubt so much that we were good enough for God. We doubted that God was there at all, and we wanted, to show him, we wanted him to show himself. And so they developed in the 1960s and 70s uh, quite a movement in the mainstream churches, uh, stemming originally from the Pentecostalism of the uh, American churches and then going back further into uh, uh, Wesleyanism and Methodism and so forth and so on. Nothing against Methodists, but just saying this is historically where it comes from. Uh, they grew to this idea that we could see miracles, that there were miracles out there that you could see and experience. 
Uh, you, could, you could have an experience which was a miraculous experience. And so uh, experience, Christian experience, came to be a hugely important thing in successive generations, not just in this, the Pentecostal churches, which were quite small in those days, uh, but, in the, uh, but in the mainstream churches as well. And uh, that experience-seeking changed as time went on. And uh, in the end, even standing for uh, three-quarters of an hour and swaying and singing uh, was enough to give you the experience jolt you needed for the week. Uh, you're experiencing God in this way. So originally, uh, the question was, which in my earlier generation, am I accepted? I'm so full of guilt. God, give me a boost here. Put petrol in me. Get me, get me up and going. And then, then there is no personal God. I feel powerless. Show me a miracle. Show me that you're here. There are some students at the University uh, of Sydney, where I used to minister, uh, who, uh, who went into the library one day and they prayed that the clock would stop inside the library there. And uh, their claim was that the clock stopped. And for half an hour, they just let it go. And then half an hour later, they came back and prayed again, and the start, clock started again. Do you think God would do that? I mean, to make the whole university late by half an hour, people going, oh, it's only for, oh, okay, my bus isn't here yet. You think, how, what? You think that sort of thing, I don't know whether it was true or not, maybe the, but you know, as the evil one does miracles, you don't have to be a Christian to have miracles. The other religions have miracles. And uh, the sensation of God's appearance. But this was a way, a, a sort of a desperate attempt at assurance. Well, Christians can have assurance. Christians can be assured of God's presence, God's mercy, God's acceptance, God's providence, God's sovereignty. We can be assured of these things. The question is how? And that's where we turn to the goodness of God, the goodness of God, and a passage which uh, illustrates the goodness of God and helps us to work out which city we're going to live in, uh, uh, Zion or, or Babel, and which city we are already living in. And here's where we turn to our reader and ask her to give us Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, Will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation.
Good, thanks so much. Now keep that open and look at the, uh, the outline here, justified by the good God. God is good. Not just righteous and holy, he is that. But his righteousness, his holiness, his goodness. You don't often meet a good person. Our God is a good God. Justified by a good God. Sustained by the power of God. Persuaded by the Spirit of God. Assured by the Word of God. Loved by the Son of God. What then is love? Right? Ready? Okay. Justified by a good God. Uh, you're in court. Everything's against you, particularly the fact that you knew that you committed the crime. Uh, you are going to be condemned in this court. And then you are justified. Uh, if that happened, if you were acquitted and you knew you did the crime, that would be hard to take in a way. Well, I'm so glad I'm getting out of here. But you knew you did it. But in the justification that God offers, you are justified because he bore the pain for you. He bore the penalty of your sin. And so you are acquitted, but you are acquitted justly. He does not, he does not prejudice his own justice by acquitting you. He bears the pain himself. He takes the cost, bears the pain, and therefore he is both just and the justifier of those who need his justice. And hence, as Paul says here, and this is a summary of chapter one, uh, chapters 1 to 4, therefore, he says, since we have been justified, not by good works, not because you're a, bonza, uh, a really good person. Sorry, I've just explained the word bonza. Bonza means in, oh, in English when I was growing up, uh, something is really good. So not just because you're a bonza person. There you are, new word for you. Uh, but because not because you're a success, not because you're you know you're, you you've set up a, a charity which has now raised a hundred million dollars to feed people in somewhere or other, not because you're a good person, because you're never good enough, no matter what you've done. You're justified by faith. Not just when it says faith there, it doesn't just mean faith, as in I believe in dogs or something. It's faith in God that justifies, because He is the God who justifies. You are justified with, by faith, and we have, oh, blessed word. You see, later on, did you notice that? Quite a bad word there, verse 10. We were enemies of God. Don't make a bad enemy. Well, you can't make a worse enemy than God. Whew. But we have. And yet, verse 1 tells us, since we have been justified by faith, by faith alone, not by good works, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the reason why we now have peace with God through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. And as a result, we stand in grace. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. I always think of it as standing under a nice shower, but that's probably not quite what he has in mind there. But we stand in grace. Uh, we can crumple. We could fall, we could collapse because of our sinfulness. We should. But in fact, you are standing. You are standing. How come you're standing when you are such a sinner? By grace. One of the great moments, of the, one of the reasons for the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, was that people started to go back to the original languages of the Bible. 
the Greek and Hebrew of the Bible instead of the Latin that they were reading. And when they did go back to the original language, they discovered that words didn't have the same meaning as they were taught. So, And that was true of the word faith. Faith in uh, the 16th century and for many people now is, uh, is intellectual belief. Well, of course, you're not saved by intellectual belief, though that's important. You are saved by trust. The word in the New Testament means trust, which is not intellectual, yes, but it's more than that. It's the heart, the whole person. Uh, the same with grace. Grace had come to mean sort of a power, a force. And when the uh, scholars look back, they discover that grace originally meant, yes, it sometimes does mean a force or a power, but it means fundamentally it means the love of God. And it's not just the love of God, it's the love of God to those who do not deserve his love, those who don't deserve it. Remember that, <laughs> dear, do you remember that irritating story Jesus told about the, he obviously never had teenagers, um, about the prodigal son? Makes me so angry. The prodigal son takes all this money, buzzes off, spends it all on whatever he wants to spend it on, makes an ass of himself and finishes up in a pig's sty where he's eating the food given to pigs, then decides to come home. Oh, very nice. And the father, instead of being a good father, which I would be, looks for the boy and he looks for him and waits for him. And when he sees him coming, he doesn't stand on the hill with his arms like this, waiting for this ass of a boy to come home and say, right, out back, kiddo, you'll be working for the, with the servants from now on. He embraces him. And he clothes him in filial robes, in the robes of a son. And he slays the calf. The calf which has been put aside for a wedding or something like this, he slays the calf and they have a feast in honour of this. No wonder the older brother was so angry. This, listen to the pro pronouns. You know what a pronoun is, don't you? Sorry. My children don't know what pronouns are. Uh, okay, because anyhow, we won't go there. But <laughs> listen to the pronouns. This son of yours. He doesn't say this brother of mine. He says, this son of yours who has come back and you have killed the fat and calf for him. You can feel the anger. And not only can you feel the anger, you would be angry too. And the father says, you've been with me all the time. Everything I have is yours. This son of mine, who son, this brother of yours who was lost has come back and so forth and so on. Now, that is a perfect picture of grace. And it's the older brother who is out of fellowship with God, not the younger brother. The younger brother has trodden the path of repentance. The older brother is treading the path of pride. I have worked for you all these years. I have done this. I have done that. I deserve to have and the father says, you know nothing. And it's grace that motivates the father. Grace is a wonderful biblical word for the love of God towards those who do not deserve his love. Do you know that that's you? 
Because if you don't know it's you, you're not a Christian yet. You know it's you. And furthermore, because you've been justified by faith, you stand in grace. You stand, but only in grace. It's only as God keeps his eye on you. It's only as God, or as John Calvin said, if I may quote John Calvin after saying what I said previously, as John Calvin said, when you, when you become a Christian and you, you, you enter in trembling with uncertain faith and have I got enough faith and so forth, and you see as if from a distance the face of God turned towards you and God is smiling. It is the smile of God. Can you imagine the smile that God gives you as you come back to him? That's grace. And you stand in grace. If you move away from it, if you start with grace and move off into good works, you should do good works. But good works for merit to build up merit to get saved, you're no longer standing in grace. You stand in grace. That's where you stand. And that is where you are as a Christian. And you need to know that for, because of what's coming next. Okay? You stand in grace, rejoicing in hope, sustained by the power of God. And you need to be, look at what happens. Sustained, uh, access to him by faith and grace. We, stand, we boast in our hope of the glory of God because we have the promises of God in future and we're trusting in the promises of God. Not only that, we boast. Now, this is not, it's obviously not Christian. It should be taken out of the Bible, this bit. Hang on a moment, I'll rip it out. Oh, no. You're not supposed to do that. But how? You're standing in grace, you've been justified by faith, and now it says we boast, yes, in our affliction. But you're a Christian. How can you suffer? How can you suffer pain, adversity? How can you suffer disease? How can you suffer the heartbreak of broken relationships? How can bad things happen to you? You're a Christian. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I get parking spots out of that. Everything works for me. I'm a Christian. What? We boast in our afflictions. Now that word stands for all those things. The horror of broken relationships, the pain and suffering and grief when we lose someone, our own sickness and inabilities. I have a dear friend who's just gone to hospital again. Her life in the last 30 or 40 years has been spent going in and out of hospital. Her, her poor husband who stood by her all these years. It's been terrible. And she's a believer, standing in grace. But she's been afflicted. There's no good saying to me, well, if she prayed more, or if she had more faith, if she had 100% faith, God would have cured her. That's a wicked thing to say. That's wicked. You understand that, don't you? Jesus had perfect faith and they crucified him. Jesus had perfect faith and one of his friends betrayed him. Jesus had perfect faith and another of his friends denied him. Jesus had perfect faith. Look what happened to him. Perfect faith is not a shield against adversity. 
adversity will strike you and hit you. Of course, pray. By all means, pray for healing if you're sick. By all means, pray. The Bible tells you to. But don't think that your prayers automatically, if they're strong enough, will lead you to miraculous cures. Sorry. That's not biblical. Instead, what we're told here is that as a Christian, you will, like all the rest of humankind, in fact, sometimes more than, you will suffer afflictions. However, when it comes to our afflictions, we know that they are purposive. There's a meaning behind them because we know our God who has allowed these things to happen. Look, and we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance and endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope and hope will not disappoint us. In other words, God is at work even in your afflictions to make you, to shape you, to make you into changing you from one degree of glory to another to make you the person that you are intended to be. They're not necessarily uh, uh, punishments for sin, though sometimes they can be, but they are God's. God has allowed them because they are shaping your character, shaping you to be Christ's person. Romans 8 tells us that. When we say all things work together for good, doesn't mean, oh, everything's going to be unky. Sorry, can I say unky dory? Does that make sense? No. She's my English expert. <laughs> Contemporary. Everything is going to be all right. Doesn't mean that. All things work together for good means that you will be like Jesus. The good for you is to be like Jesus. And the things that happen to us, even if they're things that are very painful, Will be, part, will be used by God, will be used by God to turn us into the men and women we need to be. Sure, pray. Sure that, pray will, that God will relieve us. Father, uh, uh, lead us not into testing and trial, but deliver us from evil. There's a good prayer, yes. But remember that ultimately it's God's will for us that matters, and that may well involve affliction and dismay and pain and suffering, yes because they produce in us, if we live by faith, of course, they produce in us uh, uh, endurance, character, and character produces hope. We are sustained in these things by the power of God. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So we trust God with them. We trust God with them. Uh, just to uh, illustrate one of the points I'm making here, my dad grew up in a country town in New South Wales called Cowra, which he said was the greatest little country town in New South Wales, I believe him. Um, uh, the uh, leading Christian in town was a layman. He wasn't a clerk minister, but he was a layman, Methodist layman, and a very fine man indeed, admired by everybody in this little town. One of his problems was that he'd broken his arm years before, and his arm was now permanently broken and misshapen. This is 100 years ago. This is not now, 100 years ago. And, um, and there was news that going on in Sydney, uh, there was going to be a, a, a faith mission, a healing faith mission where people would get healed. And so um, uh, this man went down to town. Everyone knew, of course, that he was going to town to have his arm fixed. So he went up to Sydney uh, and, uh, and uh, took part. And then he came home and his arm was the same. 
And people said to him, What happened? What happened, Bert? Why is your arm not fixed? And he said, I wonder what you think he might say. Tell you what he did say. No, he said, I did not have enough faith. Now you think about that. You think about the impact that that had in that country town when the best Christian in town did not have enough faith to have his arm fixed, let alone his sins taken away. It had a terrible impact. I did not have enough faith. As if the quantity of his faith would turn the handle and God would obey him because he had the quantity of faith he needed to get his arm fixed. No. It had a big negative impact when that's all he could testify to. That even the best of men didn't have enough faith. You see, we've got to have faith in God and that means having faith in the Word of God. Not words that people tell us who aren't God, promises they make which aren't God's promises, not, oh, this is going to happen to you if you pray hard enough. Not, if you give generously enough, God will give it all back to you again. Not words that are not from God. What I love about the Bible, among other things, is it's the Bible. That is to say, <laughs> it belongs... Just wondering, was there a mouse? It, I was just about to use you as an illustration, and you looked down. Hi, Jeeva. Yes, I know you. Of course I know you. We've met before. What I know about the Bible is you've got one the same as me. The promises you've got are the promises I've got. The commands that are aimed at you are aimed at me. People sometimes say, oh, God told me to do this, God told me to do that. I say, well, I don't get those sort of messages, but I do have the word of God, and he tells me to do this, that, or the other, which, by the way, is the same as what he tells you. It's very democratic. There's no sort of spiritual aristocracy out there that actually God told us to... What? Read the Bible. God tells you there. And so faith is attached to the word of God. He can be trusted in what he tells us in the promises of God. Yes? So we sustain by the power of God and persuaded by the spirit of God. Now, again, in the 1960s, suddenly we'd been talking about Jesus all the time. Thank you very much. Actually, the way the Bible does, really. But suddenly in the 60s and 70s, we talked about the Holy Spirit. And indeed, in my part of the world, uh, and we were criticised by others around Australia because apparently we believed in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible instead of God the Holy Spirit. So we were quite criticised for this. Well, the Spirit wrote the Bible, come to think of it, yes. Anyway, be it as it may, uh, true enough or false enough, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit the work of the Holy Spirit, it's very interesting. If you, if, you, if you read your Bibles, you'll see that the work of the Holy Spirit, well, part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to point you to the Father. 
You call God Father because the Spirit of God enables you to call God Father. And you call, as Galatians 4, and 1 Corinthians 12, you call God, you call Jesus Lord because the Spirit enables you to call Jesus Lord. In a sense, the Spirit points away from himself, you see, to Christ. That's his, his great ministry is to point to Jesus and ultimately to the Father. If you want to be led by the Spirit, be led to Jesus, led to the Father. That is the powerful work of the Spirit of God within you, bearing his fruit and all that sort of thing, which is perfectly true. He is the one who inspired the Bible. And we listen to the Spirit. You're led by the Spirit as you read the Bible and believe it and obey it. That, I think, is the leading of the Spirit. Well, and believing in Jesus and, and trusting in God your Father is the work of the Spirit. Now, have a look at verse 5. This hope will not disappoint us because <laughs> God's love, God's love has been poured into our hearts uh, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, the first time I ever read that, and the second time, and the third time, and the fourth time, I assumed it meant, when God's love was poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit, I assumed it meant that I was a loving person, because I have the Holy Spirit within me, which is true, and because I believe in Jesus, and the Spirit makes me a more loving person, which is true too, because the Spirit has fruit. I assumed God's love has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit it means that God creates a more loving person by the Holy Spirit, but that's not what it means. What it means is that God's love has been poured into your heart. In other words, you are persuaded that God loves you by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not you are made a loving person. That may be true. But this verse means you are persuaded that God loves you because of the powerful work of the Spirit of God telling you that God loves you. It's like Galatians 2.20. Doesn't it come instantly to mind? Joanna, do you mind looking up Galatians 2.20 for me? Would that be a go? Galatians 2.20, because that's, it's so personal. Paul says it, but I'm sure all of us can say it, if it's true. Galatians 2.20. Well, speak up there and people will hear. One, two, three. Thank you. Um, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice the pronoun. Me. Yes, it's true, as we reminded in the question and answers, that Jesus the love of God for the whole world. But that verse says, the love of God for me. I can say, you can say, that God loves me. You may not be loved by many people, I don't know. Your life may mean that there's not many that would love you. You may be a lonely person. You may not be, have that experience particularly. But as a Christian, you know this, that God loves you. And that will give you strength to go on 
standing in the grace of God, standing under the love of God for you personally, and the Holy Spirit convinces you of that. How does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, uh, and here we move on, assured by the word of God, because although uh, in the English text we have here, it goes straight on to a new paragraph with a new heading, the justified or reconciled, that's not quite right, because in the Greek there's what's called an enclectic there. It means that verse 5 and verse 6 belong together. The Holy Spirit convinces us of the love of God. How? For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The Holy Spirit persuades you that Christ loved you by taking you straight to the cross through the word of God. The, I, yes, of course, in your heart, in your emotions, you know that God loves you. That's very wonderful, and so you should, etc., etc., etc. But even when your emotions let you down and you feel lost and lonely and anxious and everything else, the word of God still stands, and the word of God says you are precious. You are loved. You individually are loved. And how do you know you are loved? The word of God tells you, and it tells you you are loved because Christ died for the ungodly. That's you. And then the text goes on saying exactly the same thing in different ways. Look, this is one of the most precious texts to which you can return again and again. It's all about you. That's a very important person. For rarely will someone die for a just person, a good person, maybe someone die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let those words be imprinted on your heart. Let them be there when in the midst of darkness and gloom and anxiety and depression, in the midst of grief and suffering and pain, in the midst of whatever is going to come to you. You are able to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through the word of God, pointing you to the cross of Christ and therefore the love of God for you. Stand under the grace of God. Stand. For you may. For you have been justified by faith. And that is your assurance. That is your assurance. You see, in the end, let me put it this way. I've been a Christian now for um, 65 years and I have uh, experience and I can testify to the experience of God and I hope you can as well. Maybe not as long yet, but you probably not as long yet. But I can testify about, about prayers answered. I can testify about blessings that have flown. I can testify, look, I have a friend at the moment who's in, in terrible pain and suffering. He's one of God's chosen ones. He's... he's but he's in terrible pain and suffering. He's, he's done something terrible to his back. But even in the midst of this, in the midst of it, there are signs, two or three just extraordinary signs of the love of God. I'm still here. You can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and see the signs of the presence of the good shepherd who is walking with you along the way. Experience does matter. 
The experience of being loved by other Christian brothers and sisters is a wonderful experience. It matters. The love of, the love of the brothers is a sign of the love of God. Experience is really significant when it comes to giving us assurance. I don't doubt that for a moment. And I can testify to you, I could write books about the experience of living under the sovereignty of God, knowing that he is in charge of all things, and that all things are working together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And Christine and I together could write a book about it, as can any Christian and any Christian couple, about God's wonders in our lives. But you know, if I couldn't do that, or if I went to a stage where it was all terrible, like my, my dear beloved sister in hospital again, or my dear beloved brother whose, whose pain is so obvious in his face, if, if that's where the position I got to, I could still testify to the love of God by the power of the Holy Spirit assuring me of the love of God through the word of God, which points me to the cross of Christ. Whatever else happens, you can go to the cross and see the truth about the goodness of God and that God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? That's the truth. And that's the assurance you need to have. And you don't and be careful not to be swept away by experiential Christianity. Nothing wrong with experience, but not based on the truth of the word of God. Not based on the sinfulness of the human heart. Not based on the cross of Christ. Not based on a true understanding of the spirit of God. Not based on the gospel of the grace of God and the justification of by faith. You are loved by the Son of God. He gave his life for you. You are loved by the Father who gives his Son. You are loved by the Holy Spirit who draws you into fellowship with the Father of the Son and prays for you all the time, as does the Son. What then is love? The world does not understand love. It has abandoned love. It refers to live in Babel where people prey upon each other, where people will not love each other, where individualism is everything, where I am the most important person and love has been abandoned and people don't understand it, where they slay their own children in the womb. That's the world we're living in. But Louis, who belong to Jesus, understand what love is. Because we start with the love of God and his sacrifice for us and his ongoing envelopment of his love for us, his family. We understand love. And we have the experience of love as we love our brothers and sisters in the fellowship of God. We know love. And we are assured that he loves me. I want you to hear that. Some of you here don't understand. You are pained that God, you wonder if you are loved by anybody. You may say, I don't look good enough to be loved. 
I don't do this to be loved. My parents don't really love me. But God does. You may be sure of that. He sent his son who died for you on the cross. He loves you. Oh, yes. Now I'm going to ask us in a moment now to stand again. And we're going to celebrate the love of God in one of his great psalms. It's Psalm number 84. And we're going to celebrate the love of God and be assured. And in this psalm, I hope you see the love of God, which culminated, of course, in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 84. And this time, we'll say it together. Are you ready? One, two, three. How lovely is your dwelling place, Gracious God, we thank you uh, that um, you are there and you are not silent. You speak. And what an act of love that you would speak to us. Thank you so much, God, that you do not leave us in the dark, but we can hear your voice, a voice which makes a promise to us, a voice which has promised to love us in your Son, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, may we continually turn back to you. May we continually humble ourselves before you. May we cast ourselves on our knees before your throne with your word open before us so that in it we might find life itself. And so strengthen us, we pray, that we might do these things no matter how hard or easy our life might be, whether we are afflicted by pain and suffering or life is good and easy, whatever it might be, that we might find at the cross of Christ that wonderful truth that we are loved by you. We are loved by the Son who gave his life for us. We are loved by the Father who gave his Son for us. And we are loved by the Spirit who draws us into that relationship and with the Son prays for us. And we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.